Hello, everyone. Titus O'Reilly here. As you may know by now, we have a membership program, Bazaar Plus, and it's very easy to join. Just go to the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bazaarplus.com. That's Bazaar Plus, our membership program. We'd love to have you on board. It's Sports Bazaar. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flicked on. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangest. Wow. This is outrageous. It's not for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. And clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone being money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports Bazaar. Yeah, were you saying horse whipped as in he was actually horse whipped? Yeah, uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> of rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperado. So like the Sports Bazaar audience. Yeah. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. Inept at best and corrupt at worst. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar with me, Mick Malloy. And as always, as I say every week, doing the heavy lifting, it's Titus O'Reilly. How goes, sir? <laughs> very formal. Very formal, wasn't it? Yeah, very formal. Yeah, I'm smoking a pipe, by the way. You can't <laughs> see it, but that's what I'm doing. Uh, what do you got for me? Come on. Well, I have you... no idea what you're about to say. No, this one I've kept from you. Mm. What's surprising about this one today? There's two things I want to say up front before we get into it. Yeah. Is, is it a disclaimer? No, it's not a disclaimer. First, I'd say at the time when this happened, it was the biggest event in the world. Literally, like, the whole world was, okay. like, a media frenzy like the moon landings. And I'm not wow. saying that, like, hyperbole. It really was. That much people listening on radios can tuning I, can into I this whole thing. Guess? You can try and guess. Oh, but I'm not going to get it. You're pretty confident. No, no, you might get it. Underarm delivery. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, ben Johnson. No. Um, what about uh, the Washington Generals Be- beating <laughs> beating the Harlem Globetrotters? No, no, no. All no. right, far away. And I'd secondly say rarely in sport, and this is a race we're going to be talking about, does it fundamentally change our entire world? That sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. Good Lord. So, let's start. Back in 1934, yes. it was the 100th anniversary of Settlement of Melbourne, the town we're currently in. Now, I say settlement as in white settlement. So, of course, there were so, Indigenous people here. For, for a good 50,000 years Probably 50,000 years, perhaps longer. You know, yeah, every, time, every time they find a bit of information, it goes back it even goes further. It goes back even further. But at the time in the 30s, the white people didn't really, they weren't thinking about that, yes. right? Melbourne, by the way, we could be living in a city called Batmania. It was almost called Batmania. After John Batman. How much cooler would it be to say, on your passport, where are you from? Batmania. Batmania. Yeah, I know. Oh, but you know also, it's named after Melbourne, which was, there was a Lord Melbourne who was Prime Minister yeah. under Queen Victoria, and he was a notorious, basically a sexual pervert. So oh. we are named, like a really bad one. <laughs> Batmania would, like, have, would like, have been the more conservative option. Well, so bad that if he was alive today, he'd probably have worked at the BBC. <laughs> Seriously. Is uh, that, so we're named after. There's the Catholic Church and then there's the BBC. BBC, yeah. Pick your poison. So 1930s in Australia, no one was even thinking about that, but they were arguing over the 100th anniversary of the settlement of Melbourne. Yeah. And they were, 
decided that 1834 was going to be the date they'd judge it from, so that would make 934 the 100th, yeah. which was the settlement in Portland of Edward Henty, who settled there as first white settlement, and also John Batman's pronouncement of the area upstream of the Yarra River in 8th of June, 935. So they sort of took that 1930 into 935 yep. as when they were going to celebrate Melbourne's 100 years of white settlement, or as they just called it, settlement. settlement. <laughs> right? Um, they ignored John Pascoe Faulkner, who some argue was actually the one who first set up a permanent place here. So there was even arguments among the white people of when this was They've all got statues though, haven't they? They've all got statues and if you grow up in Melbourne, all those names are familiar because there's things named after them, Faulkner and all the those statues sort of gone things. out of vogue. I remember talking to someone like this in government who like, had done something with a statue and they said if you are famous enough and they offer you something, you want a road named after you, not a statue because <laughs> no one notices a statue. Yeah. But a road, everyone says, you know, okay. Hoddle Street. Everyone knows Hoddle it's Street practical. in Melbourne. You need to know it. You need it to know it. So your you. name gets said all the time because people go, you know, go up this street. But so, not a statue. The only sportsman. Yeah, but they might with sports people a little bit, but with, you know, like there's ones all around where you see in Melbourne where you well, go. There's a warning statue out the front of the MCG. We well, should be smoking. Yeah, well, we remember when he passed away, everyone put cans of VB on it. It was like, <laughs> and I thought that's a life well lived when that's how that's people remember you, though. I was glowing tribute. They decided to think, how are we going to honour 100 years of settlement in Melbourne, yeah. the fathers of the town, you know, sure. the, the people running the town were thinking about this. There's a lot of discussion about should we even celebrate the founding of Melbourne. They were in the middle of the Great Depression. So it's 1929 and it hit the whole world Belts hard. tight. Victoria was really hit hard. And by 932, when they started to think about planning, 30% of men were unemployed. So okay. pretty tough times. But it was decided by the government and the powers that be that they would celebrate the anniversary of Melbourne's founding because they thought it was an important occasion, but also it would drag in visitors and money. It would get money circulating in the community yeah. by having events and various things. And so they decided to spread these out over a six-month period. So they began planning a Centenary Celebrations Council set up to start planning it all, and it was military men of distinction, it was public sure. servants, all these sort of people, administrators. They want entrepreneurs, and they came up with a bunch of ways to celebrate Melbourne. Yeah. So they had centenary editions of the Royal Agricultural Show, which is a big deal here in right. Melbourne. The Melbourne Cup, our massive oh, race. That became huge a, race. Yeah, stops the nation. Stops the nation. They had a royal visit by Prince Henry, who was a prince of the realm. So he came out and he opened the Shrine of Remembrance, which had just been finished, and 300,000 people showed, turned up for that. There was a display of the world's biggest birthday cake, so this was it was called okay. the, it's called the, too far now. It was called the centenary cake. It weighed ten tons and was fifty feet high. Did anyone burst out of that? <laughs> it's like, had, is that a Trojan cake? <laughs> well, it? it had ninety nine candles and it was cut into two hundred and fifty thousand pieces. Okay. Individually wrapped in cellophane and then put in a tin oh, box. Um, maybe that is a bit offensive during a depression. <laughs> yeah. It contained across the 250,000 pieces, 100 of them had gold sovereigns hidden in them. Jesus. And you could buy them for one shilling each and the proceeds went to charity. So that was one thing they did. Sir Russell Grimwade, he was an Australian chemist and industrialist. He bought the home of Captain Cook's parents in Yorkshire 
had it dismantled, yeah. shipped to Melbourne and okay. rebuilt in Fitzroy Gardens, which you would know quite well. Well, I'd know very well. I've spent a night in Captain Cook's cottage. So this is Captain Cook's Fitzroy parents' Gardens. house. Yeah, it's his it, actual house. It's, yeah. And it's still there in the Fitzroy Gardens in a park for our yeah. overseas listeners. Captain Cook, obviously the great explorer and arguably found, yeah. you know, in quotation yeah. marks, Australia. And so it's quite well known. As school kids, we all go and visit sure. it, right? But this is when it got built. And so you stayed there because it's, it's, well, not, hey, a, it's not a place that people no, normally stay. Not. But when you're walking home drunk from the city <laughs> to East Melbourne through the Fitzroy Garden. Which is something you do always every night. And there's no one around. What, you just walking one night home, walking home, through the you town. just thought, yes. I'll have a sleep. I'm had a little little kip in. It's in big parkland. It's in a big open park. park, Yeah, yeah. I'm going back some time. I'm going back to like late eighties, early (laughs) nineties. And you just got in and and went. Can I say it's a very small bed? It's not built for people to. And you just. I crashed in his bed. And no one noticed. No one noticed. How long were you in there? I had to get up about dawn because I could hear people starting to rustle. (laughs) Oh my god. That's that, a true story. Anyone else tells me that, I wouldn't believe him. With you, it happened. It's, uh, I just know it. I know it's true. Why would I make that up? No, I know it's true. Jeez, <laughs> tiny bed. Were they smaller then, or did they just? Yeah, not they care? did. They no. They whole weren't. house is tiny and no window. Like they must have been to keep in heat or something. Yeah, well, there's was, not many windows, so it wasn't a great night's well, sleep. Well, it was. It was from Yorkshire. Yorkshire. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have been. <laughs> no, there was no amazing. one around. There was like a little fence. And then there's and you yeah. jump the fence, and you're good. Can night. we just say we don't advise anyone else tries this? I oh, don't do that. Don't do that. That it's would be probably, disrespectful. I think now they're probably a bit more security <laughs> conscious. So with this, Sir Russell Grimway, you've got a link to him now. He paid for it to be dismantled, yeah, and he had it shipped and rebuilt, built in Fitzroy Gardens for Mick Malloy to sleep in years later. <laughs> At the time, people attacked him because it wasn't Captain Cook's home. It was his parents. That's what I was going to say. I always thought it was Captain Cook's. And they couldn't believe he was wasting the money on this when everyone's in a depression. So that one did So get. I didn't sleep in Captain Cook's bed. It was, or his, was that his childhood bed. That's why it's so small. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really – I thought I slept in Captain Cook's bed. Well, no, it was his parents. Yeah. Um, a lot, he crashed at his parents. Um, so he got criticised for that. Other events included a National Eucharist Congress organised by the Catholics of the country. There was a centenary jamboree for the Scouts in Frankston. Wow. Uh, that was attended by the founder of the movement, Lord Baden-Powell, came out from England for that. The Argus, which was the newspaper that doesn't exist anymore, but it was the, one of the big three newspapers yes. here, it commissioned Lieutenant Geoffrey Ingleton of the Flinders Naval Depot to design a model of the Endeavour for a competition, and they got kids to build the models and send it in Ooh. and uh, judge that. And they realised halfway through that Centenary Committee was organising events that was all men. So rather than get put some women on the council, they formed a separate women's Centenary Council to come up with some events for the ladies. Oh, the, the, uh, you know. Bring a plate. Yeah, exactly. That was the... The big problem in organising all these events was the government was broke, right? Yeah. The government, it's the middle of the depression. Also, there was a bit of a sense that this whole thing was a bit boring. All these events I've just described, <laughs> it, it's fine. But Melbourne's this, you know, it had been very wealthy before the Depression because of the gold rushes. Yes. And quite a big city, 
you know, by world standards, but in in the middle of nowhere in most people's minds. It's, you know, Australia's far from Europe, very far at the time. So they needed money. So the then Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Harold Gengolt Smith, he decided to approach one of the richest men in Melbourne, McPherson Robertson, and ask him to help out. Right. So McPherson Robertson was born on the 6th of September, 1859 in Ballarat. He was the eldest of seven children. His dad was a builder um, and his father had been born in Uruguay but was actually Scottish. Yeah. And then had come to Victoria and the family were very poor and the dad was a total flake. He moved between joining the gold rushes to then trying to get work as a builder and basically had no money. He eventually, in a trying to get rich scheme, decided he was going to go to Fiji and chase some scheme there and he sent I the family. I don't fam- know anyone who's gone to Fiji to get rich. I know. And, and then man. he sent his family. Unless you're in the carver business. <laughs> exactly. So he sent his family to Scotland. So he goes to Fiji. Right. McPherson blamed his father for the rest of his life because this meant that the family were broke basically and back in Scotland without yeah. the dad. And he was nine and he realised he had to start making money. Right. So at nine he had to leave schooling he yeah. had to go and become the breadwinner at for nine? the family at nine years old. So he takes an apprenticeship at the <laughs> Victoria Confectionery Company in Scotland. Okay. In 1874, his dad calls them back to Australia. The Fiji thing falling over. He's back in Australia. <laughs> you did elaborate on what the Fiji thing was. Well, we don't know because this guy was dodgy as and you never even told them. Yeah. So to this day, we just know he went to yeah. Fiji. Um, in 1874, so this is about five years later, they returned to Australia. The father's living in what is then a very working-class suburb of Fitzroy and says, sure. I want you to come back and have, want my family back. So they back at that day, if the dad said come back, you had to come you back. Had to come right? back. So they come back. It was back when dad had a bit of authority. Yeah, a bit of authority. Yeah. The good, yeah. hey, the good the old days, eh? <laughs> I miss it. Um, McPherson, he's about 14. He starts working again. But at the age of 19, four years later, he decides, this is ridiculous, my dad cannot make money. He's an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> and he really didn't like his dad. Sure. He decides, well, I learned how to make like confectionery in Scotland. So he sets up in their bathroom slash laundry area, starts making lollies. It's like a confectionery version of a meth lab. Yeah, exactly. He starts doing it from home. Yeah, exactly. And so he makes them on Monday to Thursday and then he sells them to various places on Friday and Saturday. Now, he is great at this. He's great at marketing. He packages them up nicely. There's no Australian confectionery manufacturing. They're all imported from England. And so he starts selling them and it quickly takes off. By 1880, just two years later, he employs 30 people and he creates various lollies. So the lollies he creates, Freddo Frog, Cherry Ripe, Old Gold Chocolate, Milk Kisses and Columbine. You still get these. These are all, if you're Australian, huge lollies to this day. He invents them all. Is Cadbury's? Cadbury's buy his company later on. Okay. So huge, right? By 1900, it's called the McRobertson. He couldn't quote because his name's McPherson Robertson. He confined it to Mac Robertson. The McRobertson Confectionery Company, which he owns, is the largest confectionery company in Australia. It's got factories and agencies in every state. Yeah. He has gone in the space of about 12 years to being incredibly rich. Yeah. Right? He's always innovating. He goes over to America and sees what they're doing over there and he brings back fairy floss and chewing gum, figures that out. But while he's in America, his father has taken over the business. Oh, God. And convinces the media that he came up with everything. <laughs> 
And so McPherson, who hates his father, says, well, I'll start a rival business called the American Candy Company and starts to build that up. But his father suddenly realizes he has no idea how to run this company and <laughs> begs him to come back. Which he does. Which he does. He reluctantly comes back. His father dies in 1909 and it's only at this point his father writes a letter to the paper telling the truth that it wasn't him but his son that created all of this. So you sound like a bit of a loser. The dad was a total loser. Uh, it was a deadbeat so dad. Robertson now is in full control, owns the company, has invented all these great lollies, is printing money hand over fist. McPherson was a marketing genius. He decided to maintain like a whiteness to everything he had because it looked like cleanliness at a time when things weren't that clean, uh, like in food manufacture. So but but he, white would show the dirt, <laughs> don't you think? Well, no, he You'd had be bills. constantly dusting. So the Fitzroy factory complex where it was based, and I used to live across the road from this. It's now all apartments, but it's a huge, it's like about five blocks what of street? factories. Kerr Street, in between that. Smith, where the Marquee Lawn sort yeah, of is. Yeah, great pubs. In between uh, Smith and Brunswick Street. Yeah, there. was that the building? All those big buildings there were all the McRobertson Chocolate Factory and they were all painted back then completely white. It was called the White City, everyone called it. And by the 1930s when we're getting up to when our story today. It's like an Australian Willy Wonka. That's what they call him, the Australian Willy Wonka. <laughs> Do they? Yeah, because he dressed yeah. in like a three-piece suit all in white with a white hat and he carried a cane. This was well before Willy Wonka. And before Colonel Sanders. Before all of it, right? He had 5,000 staff and 19 buildings over five blocks in Fitzroy. Unbelievable. And this is in the middle of the Depression he had this. So he was making a huge amounts of money. He was beloved by so many people because he was a generous employer and he insured his employees. He called them co-workers. This was back in the 30s. Very clever, McRobertson. He made sure they were fairly paid. He built social welfare provisions into their wages. So they had sick leave and all this sort of stuff well before government required it. It's on the way out now. He found out that one family had three generations working in his factory, so he bought them a house. Captain Cook's Cottage. (laughs) Yeah. The other confectionery manufacturers... They all wanted him to join with them in stamping out the newly formed confectioners' trade union, and instead he said no and encouraged all his workers to join the union and also set up a female confectioners' union and let it become a clothes shop. Crikey! So he was very like. Now, in terms of giving money, it was estimated by 1933 he'd given away 360,000 pounds to charities. Now this is like 30 million dollars, right? Huge amounts. He sponsored Douglas Mawson's first Antarctic expedition in 1929 to the tune of 10,000 and gave him another 6,000 pounds for the second one in 1930. And as a result, the Royal Geographical Society gave, um, made, elected him a fellow and he received a knighthood. He became Sir McPherson Robertson. Yep. Mawson named a large tract of Antarctica McRobertson land after him and it's still named that to this day. And it's white. It is very so wide. It's very wide. He would have loved that. <laughs> what a tribute. He was an amazing man. So the Lord Mayor at the time approached him and said, could you fund some of the celebrations for the centenary? And he said, okay, and he agreed to give £100,000, which was a huge amount of money. He yes. said it was 1000 for every year of Melbourne's life. And Commonwealth Government came back and said, well, that's fine, but the city will have to pay $42,000 tax on it. So he agreed to pay the tax as well. Jesus, oh, talk about taking advantage. So of this 100000 40000 went towards the establishment of McRobertson Girls High School, 
which is still around to this day, yeah. the McRobertson Bridge over the Yarra at Grange Road, a fountain in the Melbourne Shrine of Remembrance and the Herbarium at the Royal Botanical Gardens, all of which exists to this day. Good on him. But one thing happened, one of the various projects fell over, not of those, but another one fell over. And so there's a little bit of money left. And the Lord Mayor, uh, Harold Smith, was still thinking, we need some pizzazz for these celebrations. Sure. So he came up with an idea that seemed so ridiculous, he thought there's no way this is ever going to come off. And his idea was an international air race from England to Melbourne. Now, you've got to remember, this is only 31 years after the Wright brothers invented flight. And flying from England to Melbourne took days, if not weeks normally. The fastest ever that anyone had done it in is 10 days from England to Melbourne. So it was a long time to get here yeah. with like often like about seven or eight stops minimum, sure. right? A similar event had happened in 1990. The Australian government had offered 10000 for anyone who could do this and it was done in 27 days and 20 hours. Mm-hmm. So it was very slow and incredibly dangerous to do this flight. Incredible. So this was like doing a competition to pay someone to fly to the moon. It was like literally that yeah. hard. So he put this idea out and he asked a few people who worked in you know, the aviation industry would it work and he realised he needed something that would make it people want to get involved globally. So he went to McPherson Robertson and said, look, with some money left, would we, you help put some money towards this air race? And he said, I'll put £15,000 for the prize money, which was equivalent of about $15 million yeah. at the time. The race should be named the McRobertson Air Race. After yep. out my yep. chocolate company. He also donated a gold trophy, said I'll give gold medals to all the crew, actual gold, crews and passengers who reach Melbourne. Incredible. So the basic rules were then decided. No limit to the size of the aircraft or its power. No limit to crew size. No pilot could join after it left England though. So yep. whoever was on at the start. Every aircraft had to carry three days rations per crew member, floats, smoke signals, and had good instruments. There was a prize for the outright fastest aircraft and there was also a handicap formula, a bit like the Sydney to Hobart race where you can have the line winner but then you have the handicap winner, right? Sure. It was agreed that the Royal Aero Club in London would coordinate some of this from their end and across parts of the globe and that it was going to start at Mildenhall RAF base, which is 60 miles north of London, and would end at Flemington Racecourse in Melbourne. Fantastic. It's a distance of 18,200 kilometres or 11,300 miles. Now, at the time, this is insane. you got to remember they'd just moved on from biplanes, and in this race some of the competitors fly biplanes. Really? Open cockpit like, like we're You mentioned uh, the Wright brothers? Yeah. Can I just say this? Here's my theory on the Wright brothers. <laughs> so Orville and Wilbur. Yeah. I know it's the older brother who made the younger one fly out. I'll bet you <laughs> they've both built it. But you know that authority? Go, no, you get in. You no, go. you get in. <laughs> well, I'll bet you. You'll be fine. You, no, no, what can go wrong? Here you go. I'll, I'll give you a push. I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident. <laughs> anyway, good luck. There were five compulsory stops that you had to. Right. So Baghdad. Alabad in India, Singapore, Darwin, and Charville in Queensland, right? Otherwise, competitors were free to choose their own routes beyond that. But there were a further 22 airfields were provided with stocks of fuel and oil by Shell and Stanovo, fuel companies then, 
some of the planes were going to have to stop like 20 times to get there. Sure. The least you'd have to stop is five, right? But not many but could even do that. they were mandatory. They were mandatory. 64 entrants from 13 countries. There you go. Sign up. Those magnificent men and their flying machines. These is the time where aviators are like celebrities. Yeah. Like, you know, Amelia Earhart, Charles Kingford Smith. Like, these people are absolute they're pioneers. Pioneers. They're, they're explorers. They're, you know, so this is a huge thing. Now, by the time the race starts on the 20th of October 1934, the race has been reduced to 20 planes from seven countries because a lot of people put in applied, but then just couldn't get, the mo- well, couldn't get the money together and all that sort of stuff. The majority are from the English-speaking world, America and England, but the Dutch have two entries as well because they had flown to the Netherlands East Indies quite a lot, so they kind of knew this route quite well. So coming to the English, the McRobertson race sparked this huge battle for supremacy disguise between the Americans and the English, like massive. They suddenly went, we've got to show we're yeah. the best. So this is where the whole world starts paying attention to this. Even though it's a Melbourne centenary event, the whole world goes. It's a swinging dick competition It now. is, yeah. So British aviation pioneer and, and he owned a, his own company, Jeffrey de Havilland, he saw the value in, if I can produce the winning aircraft, we'll show brutes are the best. My, and and, my and name I, will be household. Yep. And so he invents a plane. It's a racing plane specifically for it called the Comet. It's built completely for this race from yes. scratch. He knows that it's a highly customized rate plane. It's not going to make any money. He sells it for £5,000. He requires nine-month notice. Five are ordered and three are built for the race. It was such a rapid development cycle that it performed its main flight only six weeks prior to the race. So these are cutting-edge planes being put up. Yeah. Um, he also had a passenger plane, which was a bit older, the Haviland uh, Dragon uh, Rapide, which was also entered into the race. Now, of the English teams, Campbell Black and Charles Scott fly one of these comets. Um, it's known as Grosvenor House is the name of the plane. And this is a twin-engine monoplane. So this is cutting edge because it's not a biplane. Yeah. Like this is like new. Yeah, they have wow. planes that... Now, these guys are interesting. Goes Both had served as aces in World War One, and they'd spent time flying in what was in the colonies. Scott had flown in Australia with Qantas. Sure. And Campbell Black had flown in East Africa. Scott's experience of living in Australia wasn't great. He crashed the company aircraft when flying for Qantas. <laughs> and he was once had got fired and had so little money, he started selling rat traps in Melbourne. <laughs> he and Campbell Black shared a reputation as ladies' men known for their bedroom exploits. Oh, they're pilots. They're pilots and they were really known for it. At the time of the race, Scott, who was married, was involved in a complex romantic entanglement with another woman and the magazines all wrote about it. Fantastic. And it was this woman, not his wife, who saw him off when the race started. That's a scandal. It's, it was big scandals, right? Campbell Black had an interesting thing. He was well known. He had been a World War One hero. Yes. But in 1931, just three years before this, he was flying for Wilson Airlines all over Africa. And he arrived in Juba in Sudan, 250 kilometres northwest of Kenya, Uganda and the Sudan borders in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And he heard the shell agent there, because oil agents were everywhere, said a plane's gone missing and there's two German crew members. So this is in 931, have gone missing. So Black put on some fresh drinking water onto his plane and food and he took off in search of them. And he found the aircraft that was crashed in desert terrain and he landed 
The two men had put a tarpaulin over the aircraft and they were lying under it to protect themselves from the sun yes. very unwell. So he shows up. They'd had two days without drinking water or any food and they were thrilled to see him. And then he recognises the pilot and the pilot was Ernst Udet, who was a knight of the Iron Cross and a flying ace of World War One on the other side. On the other side. So he's like, I know you. Was it friendly? <laughs> they were friendly because at this point it's 1931, so they're in between the two wars. So he rescues them. Now, Udet, he was the highest-scoring German fighter pilot to survive the war and second only to um, Mans- Mansfred von Richthofen, the Red the Baron. Red Baron. So he rescues. So this was worldwide. You know, World War One ace rescues another World War One. Oh, yeah, cool. Udet goes on in 1933, now that he's been saved, to join the Nazi party <laughs> and help set up the Luftwaffe. So this, this is, is where like, you go, why did I save this guy? Like, you know, they'll travel back in time. Do you kill baby Hitler? Exactly. So he sets up that. He becomes influential in the adoption of dive bombing techniques and designs of the Stuka. <laughs> dive bomber. <laughs> He rose the position of chief of procurement and supply for the Luftwaffe, but the stress of his position and he hated it, he developed alcoholism. And when Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa, when he invaded the Soviet Union, mm. Udet fell out with the Nazi party and actually committed suicide in 1941 by shooting himself. So you kind of think he probably wishes he was never saved from that yeah. desert, you know. I don't know what the moral to that story there is. There isn't I a moral. I can't find one. I can't it's just the more you pull these threads. Bad little chapter. Owen Cathcart Jones was another English pilot. He flew a comet as well, known as the Green Comet. It was painted racing green by Bernard Rubin, who was a motor race driver. He wanted to fly it. Rubin did, but he couldn't. So Owen Cathcart Jones took his place. He had a reputation for being an excellent pilot in the army, but also a tendency to go AWOL <laughs> whenever there was a good party on. Wow. And he was also known for outrageous sort of escapades. During exercises with the English Navy fleet, loaded up his plane with toilet paper and bombed the flagship, the HMAS Queen Elizabeth, which <laughs> resulted in a please explain from the Admiralty. <laughs> oh, they would have seen the funny side. Oh, I know yeah. the Admiralty. So he was a total cad. He was mentioned in uh, a divorce proceedings and he eventually married the divorcee, which at the time was uh, not great. He had two children with her and that marriage didn't last. So he was right. another pantsman. Um, seemed like fun in these days. Oh, yeah. Every every yeah. character in this is crazy, right? There was a couple that were flying, Jim and Amy Mollison. Now, they also flew the, other, the third comet, which was called Black Magic. They're married. Now, Amy Mollison... She originally been Amy Johnson, but she'd married Jim and become Amy Mollison. She learned to fly at the London Aeroplane Club in the late 1920s. And she was determined not just to be a great flyer, but to be better than everyone else because it was considered a men's yeah, thing, of right? So she got her pilot license. She trained as a ground engineer as well. Um, she was the only woman in that role in the world at the time. And by 1930, she'd flown a Gypsy Moth solo. So these are those old biplanes, open cockpit, yeah. from London to Darwin which was just amazing, the first woman to ever well, do that's it. Almost as, you know, almost that's almost as far, right? Yeah. So she lived, breathed flying, and she finally married a fellow pilot, Jim Mollison, in 1932. They met on a commercial flight of Charles Kingford Smith's short-lived National Airways in Australia. He surprised her with a proposal just eight hours after meeting her. and she said, Eight hours? Yeah, and she said yes. So that's, they just, That's quicker than Britney Spears. He's right. It's just like wow. eight hours. So their plane, Black Magic, had barely left the factory and they didn't really feel like they knew how to fly it that well at this point. So in the days leading up to the race, they've all gathered here in 
in England. Mm. And so the, all the world's press are there. They all take off at the same time? They take off in like 45 seconds. One goes in another and then they adjust the time for, for when you left. But at one point as they're practicing, Amy jumped behind the controls to take it off for some rep- like to show some reporters the plane. This is in the days leading up yes. to the race. Jim said, no, don't fly it. You, you know, I don't think you've got a good feel of it yet and sort of talked really down to her. And he was yelling and screaming as she taxied down the runway in front of all the reporters. And then he ran to a phone in front of all the reporters and rang their insurer to increase the aircraft's insurance before she took off. <laughs> well, of course, she flies it and lands it fine, right? I was going to say. Jim then has a go and upon landing, he almost crashes it with one wing touching the ground upon landing and almost destroying the entire plane. <laughs> so there was tension before these two before yeah. they even fly. Another team, Harold Brook and Ella Lay, they flew in an M3 Falcon, which was a, a small, low-wing, two-seater monoplane. These are all cutting edge, a lot of these planes, right? Yes. He was an interesting guy, Harold Brook. He had only flown 43 miles in total <laughs> before this race. Oh. He tried to familiarise ahead of the race with the race route and he crashed in southern France just hours into the attempt. 43 miles? That's, not, that's like five minutes. Yeah. He had also convinced a paying passenger, Ella Lay, to fly the race with him. Now, she was also a pilot but she wasn't allowed to fly the plane on this. She wanted to visit relatives in Melbourne, so she agreed to go. Now, she decided that she would take enough wool and knitting needles to knit the whole way to Australia. <laughs> uh, there's oh, another, yeah. uh, uh, Cyril Davies and Cliff Hill, they were in an old biplane. Davies was known as the missionary as he'd run once run a shelter for the homeless after leaving the RAAF. So that's sort of the British teams. The Americans, they saw this as a chance to prove that their planes were superior to anything being built in sure. Britain. So Boeing had made this evolutionary leap with its 24-7D. It was a full metal plane. Now, this was new in the day. Wow. We're just moving on from wooden planes. This was, yes. this was like a spaceship at the time. It was a huge plane. It had retractable landing gear, which was new. It had autopilot, which was new. It Pardon had, me, Your Majesty. It had de-icing equipment for the wings and the tail plane, so it could actually yeah. go higher up and not get ice on it, which would crash these. And it flew for the United Airline Company in the States. And as soon as it was released, United's rival companies, Transcontinental and Western Air, saw that this 24-7D was better than their own fleet. Yeah. So they went to the US aircraft constructor Douglas and said, we need you to build a plane as good as this, if not better. Yeah. Douglas Air Company, they put up a huge sign its workshop that had a picture of the Boeing 247D and underneath the word said, like this, only better. <laughs> <laughs> so they start building and they come That's up. Like, I've had that as a director before. Do it again, but better. Yeah. So they come up with the DC-1, yes, and then they come up with the DC-2, which is going to be raced in this The Douglas DC. The Douglas DC-3 comes a year after the race, and anyone who knows anything about aviation is the first ever commercial passenger plane that becomes profitable and dominates the next 20 years of flight. But the Douglas DC-9 is a famous one Even famous, yeah. So so these that become famous, but we're up to the DC-2 is decided, and it is literally cutting edge. It's a 14-seat, 
for passengers, twin engine airline. So it's like 934 is it's brand new for this race. They have a bunch of the Americans have a bunch of interesting ones. Colonel Roscoe Turner and Clyde Pangborn, they fly the Boeing 247D. So it's as well as a flight fight between the English and the Americans, it's a fight between Boeing and Douglas as well. Roscoe Turner had film star good looks and was an outrageous self-promoter. He had his self-style uniform that included white breeches, black knee-high boots, a captain's hat adorned with his initials with wings on the side. His coat was made of lion skin. (laughs) And he accessorized with a walking stick that was made from a lion's tail. Jesus. He had fought in World War One, and that's how he'd sort of got into fighting through America there. He then went and worked in a bunch of different things of uh, setting up his own commercial flights all across America and various things. And he did a lot of publicity campaigns and record-breaking fights yeah. in America to kind of attract attention. He also built a German Gother bomber and used it in films for Howard Hughes to film a whole bunch of movies, including the movie Hell's Angel, which was a huge... Of course. Yeah, a massive thing. thing. So he was good friends with Howard Hughes. Um, I'm surprised he didn't enter this. Exactly. Now, he was very well known in Hollywood for all this sort of stuff. He became chief pilot for Nevada Airlines, and what they did is they basically flew people between Los Angeles and Las Vegas to enable them to take advantage of Nevada's laws on gambling but also divorce. (laughs) So they would fly people to Nevada so they could get divorced. Fantastic. The plane was christened the Alimony Special. (laughs) He also persuaded the Gilmore Oil Company to purchase a plane for him for promotional purposes, which he painted red and gold trim, which was their colours, and they had a matching line head as a logo. Then they used to have their products were sold as Gilmore Red Lion. So he flew this plane around. He saw a Lion Cub advertised for sale in California. Yeah. And he persuaded the owner to donate it to him in return to promote his lion breeding farm. <laughs> so he la- named the Cub Gilmore and would take him on flights yes. to promote the oil company because that was their symbol. And the um, equivalent of the RSPCA complained. So he got a parachute design just for the lion <laughs> so the oh, lion would fly with this him. is madness yeah this the is li- sheer madness the lion would fly with him the lion would live at home with him and so he used to like the lion, get the lion to scare the mailmen sometimes <laughs> and other times you would take him to the golf course just to freak everyone else out um, eventually the lion gilmore became too heavy um, and unmanageable in the aircraft. So then he just would do publicity appearances on the ground. When Gilmore the Lion died in 1952, it was stuffed and mounted and put on display in Turner's home. And when he died, it was sent to the Smithsonian Institution where it sits to this day. Yep. Turner learns of this uh, McRobertson Air Race and he gets sponsorship from Boeing, United Airlines, Heinz and Warner Brothers and they all say, so that's how big this is, right? You've got all those companies in on it. So he gets sponsorship for the race. The race. A lot of them have got owners and people backing them. He also selects Clyde Pangborn as his co-pilot and Pangborn had worked as a training, a flight instructor and one day he learned that in his biplane he could roll it onto its back and fly upside down. His nickname become Upside Down Pang. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's going to stick. That's going to stick. John Wright and John Polando. John Wright had been a baseball star who had mm. become a pilot. 
and John Palando was also, they were both very well liked because they were both very fun. Palando, when he went off to do this race, he yes. had a secret he didn't tell anyone. He'd bet a friend in New York that when he arrived in Rome, he would kiss the first policeman he saw. <laughs> <laughs> Their monoplane was called Babe Ruth after the candy bar and the baseball player. Yes. And they were sponsored by Curtis, which is the confectionery company that sure. um, does that. Another woman was Jacqueline Cochran. Now, she was one of the few women in this and she was flying it and she had been married. Her son had died at five and got divorced. She then went and became a hairdresser where she met a guy called Floyd Bostwick Oldlam and who was the founder of Atlas Corp and the CEO of RKO, which was the big movie yes. company. He was 14 years older than her, but he was one of the 10 wealthiest men in the world. So she was married to him. Now, he'd made his money during the summer of 929. He was one of the few people in America that went, I reckon the stock market's going to crash. So he sold off one half of their holdings and sold off $9 million in securities and basically he was cashed up with $14 million in cash in 1929. Incredible. The market crashes. Yes. And then he proceeds over the next few years to buy, to buy every company. <laughs> so he buys it like That's how you make money, people. Every big company. He loves Jacqueline Cochran so much that he helps her set up a cosmetic business. And she says, I want to fly. So she learns to fly. And then she says, and she becomes a very good pilot. And then she says, I want to do this race. So he buys her a plane to fly in it. Yeah. The Dutch enter a team. And the main one they enter is the Dutch airline, KLM, which is Royal Dutch Airlines. They entered the Douglas DC-2. So they buy yes. one of them. This was a really slick outfit, basically. It was a they decide to run it like a to show how good commercial flights can be. Yes. So they uh, have this brand new DC two. They decide to carry three passengers: two yes. Dutch bankers and a journalist. And they have twenty five thousand letters on board because at the time, obviously, airmail is a sure, big practical thing. Yep. Yep. They decide to do a full twenty two stop version of the race, which was sixteen hundred kilometers longer than the official yeah. rail, race route. Just to show, though, that... The touch base in those places. Uh, yeah, and they can run it. Their captain, Kone Paramenta, he's this really interesting guy. He's a great pilot. But everyone else is sort of these having affairs, these superstar. Yes. These guys are like the They're airline pilots of today. Yeah. Very well behaved, sober men. Strict. Strict. Know the rules. They're in total uniforms. They're looking... Proper. No one's got like a tiger walking stick. No one's, yeah, got, no one's doing that. <laughs> There's two Danes that enter who are very professional, um, Michael Hansen and Daniel Jensen. They have no room in their plane because they put in an extra fuel kit. So when one of them's not flying, they have to curl up in the rear of the thing like for hours on end. Sure. There's an Australian that enters solo called Jimmy Melrose. He's 21 years old. He's the son of James Melrose who basically owned a lot of South Australia, the whole Rosebank uh, area around Mount Pleasant. He'd broken the record of flying from Australia to England in eight days and nine hours. And so the McRobinson Air Race was his flight back to Australia. He decided okay. I'll race again. Right. And he looked like a movie star at 21 years old, very popular sure. with everyone. This brings us to our last few. Harold Gilman and James Baines, they were flying a Fairy Fox 1. This is a plane of the 1920s, a biplane fighter. Ooh. Bit old hat. It is old hat, and this plane particularly is in terrible condition. 
to two-seater. Another two guys, uh, Ray Perra and Godfrey Hemsworth, they are flying a Fairy Fox 1 as well. And when they arrive in it, people can't believe that they can land this thing. <laughs> Ray Perra, everyone looks at him and goes, he's not well. He's a very unwell man, they can tell. He's got boils and all other sorts of problems. <laughs> they start building it. A representative of the Fairy Fox company that still builds planes that are more modern looks yeah. at these two and says, I don't think you'll even start the race. Perra's a famous aviation name, isn't it? Yeah. He's... We've also got in another uh, monoplane, we've got World War One ace, these are from New Zealand, Mad Mac McGregor and his co-pilot Henry Johnny Walker. They're from New Zealand, North Island, and basically their local town had come up with the money to basically fund them to do That's it. nice. With sponsorship. Sir Charles Kingsford Smith, the famed Australian aviator, he was going to race in it. He was offered a Comet. He said no. Instead, he took a Lockheed Cirrus 8A. He flew it over there, but it developed cracks in the engine, and that was the So he was out. So suddenly you have all these amazing people gathered here, and the whole world is watching. Yeah. Hot, literally every radio station, every newspaper, it is yeah. just wall-to-wall coverage because you've got everyone in it. And this is seen like this amazing thing that's going to happen. How are people going to uh, uh, like do it? And yeah. quite likely they're not all going to make it Sure, is the thing people realise. King George V and Queen Mary and the Prince of Wales arrive unexpectedly in the lead-up and visit all the teams <laughs> and they wander around. The Dutch crew line up respectively and handle themselves very well. Yeah. Very- representing KLM, very proper. Amy Johnson, one of the married couple, she suggests the king should join the race, which was a faux pas because the king hated planes. <laughs> but the most amazing one is Roscoe Turner, who was he of the uh, lion coat and walking stick. Yes. He meets the king and his American and says, Hello, king. <laughs> <laughs> he's, done his own work. he's done his own work. On the day the race is to start, 60,000 people turn up to watch. 60,000? 60,000 people show up. The first plane to take off is the Black Magic flown by Jim and Ailey Mollinson mm-hmm. who have had those tensions in the build-up. Oh, Who's flying? On Jim is flying and there's great fanfare because he's the first to take off and they push forward, begin its run-up and they can't take off. They don't build up the speed. They tries again and they can't build up the speed and it's this huge anticlimax. And then suddenly Amy points out to Jim that he'd forgotten to release the brake. (laughs) (laughs) He's not enjoying this. And the race begins. And we might leave it there and come back back because it is going to get wild. Well, we're at a good good posse. See the set. Biggles not in it. (laughs) No. Well, this is great. What an odd bod bunch. Very odd. Here we go. Cannot wait for the conclusion. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to another episode of Sports Bazaar. We had an absolute ball and we are so thankful for you all listening. If you're interested, we do have a membership program. That gets you a bonus podcast every week. And to maybe incentivize you to join up, Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. Jax2 on the Discord said, Hey, guys, the discussion about the Harlem Globetrotters in the bonus episode reminded me of the time I saw them unofficially lose to the Generals. I beg your pardon. This could be breaking news here. Are you kidding me? Yeah. We'll get him in. This is a whole interview. He said, I think it was about 2019 and a group of friends decided it'd be fun to go see the Globetrotters on tour. The game was the usual spectacle and very enjoyable. 
and the Globetrotters were behind by about 10 points with about five minutes to go. Oh, no. The plan, I guess, was to make a memorable comeback, but the way they decided to do this was to implement their new gimmick. There was a new zone on the court about two metres behind the three-point line. They had placed a circle, and any shot made from within it was worth five points. The idea, obviously, was they were going to do it. Right. The Globetrotters proceeded to brick shots from there for the next three minutes. What happened? It became so farcical at one point, the generals basically got the rebound and passed it back to the player <laughs> in the five-point zone. <laughs> oh, with barely any pretense of a competitive game remaining. Anyway, with 30 seconds to go, somehow the Globetrotters were still down five points. <laughs> at this point, the person emceeing the event just turned the scoreboard off. The guy trying to score one more basket, the buzzer went, and the generals had won by three points. The MC then comes on and announces the world famous Globetrotters had won again and thanked us all for no. attending. Surprisingly, most people in attendance weren't outraged at this blatant disregard for the rules of basketball, <laughs> and there was no immediate riot at the result. Still, those of us that were there that night know the truth that regardless of the record books, we saw the generals you win. You have witnessed something. Hardly anyone has ever witnessed in that is sport. a cracking story. Wouldn't it be great to see a like a Michael Jordan style documentary <laughs> series <laughs> on from the uh, Washington Generals? I want to find out more about that. That is Jaxie too. Thank you so much. Yeah. That is an absolute. Well, that's made my day. I know that, that is, is absolutely fantastic. So that's you could do an episode on that. I know no, we need you, to. I need you could to do interview. the full dig on that. But you could that would make world. That's how we uh, muscle our way into the big markets overseas. <laughs> by, where the we blow the lid the, on, on the Harlem Globetrotters. We <laughs> we've had it too good for too long. The, no, we're supporting the Washington Generals, who have yeah. not. We need to have this win acknowledged. It's a bit and like we put, uh, people I, will come for it. I feel like it's a bit like proving the WWE is fake. <laughs> hey, I'm on the general side. I really am. And that's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bizarre Plus program. Simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bizarreplus.com.